My 4th of July sermon today is entitled, Making America Great Again. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what is he thinking? (laughs) Right? (laughs) And I want to tell you and hopefully assure you, this is not going to be a political sermon today. So you can take a breath. Independence Day is meant to be bipartisan, right? And some of you have said, what is bipartisan? Is that a new thing that we wear? We haven't seen a bipartisan lately. What does a bipartisan look like? And perhaps we're still reeling a bit from uh, the divisive culture that we live in today, heightened by uh, politics, really, and And perhaps you're as frustrated as I am with both sides of the political aisle and about fed up with division and violence and meanness and childishness and stubbornness and egos and texts and tweets and reporters and journalists and politicians and words, 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 blah, blah, blah. So what I'm going to do today is address us first as Christians and then as Americans with the word of God, the Bible, that we vow to engage passionately here at Lover's Lane. And I have a challenge for us just to prove this is not meant to be political this morning. I want to challenge each and every one of us to dedicate the month of July to prayer and praying daily for our president, our Congress, our Supreme Court, our state politicians, our city leaders, and let's not forget to pray for the Christian church in America and say a special little prayer for United Methodists. And then I want to, in this sermon, hopefully tell you what I'd like for you to pray for. You know, I read this week that the average age of great civilizations in history is about 200 years, which means we're living here in the United States on borrowed time. The nation of Israel that we're going to read um, about this morning had known greatness under King David, and now King Solomon, David's son, was leading the kingdom as the king. He rebuilt the temple that we read about, and God's construction and reconstruction of the temple was foremost task in his mind. And yet, we understand that in that day, there was an interest in God-fearing, humble-hearted people, um, which was becoming more and more challenging to the nation. They were forgetting where they'd come from. They were forgetting the foundations of who they were and are. Chronicles tells the story of the Babylonian captivity and the exile of the Jews. The fall of the kingdom happened in large part because King Solomon, the kings after Solomon, had forgotten what made their country great. I want us to turn this morning to 2 Chronicles, and we're going to begin reading with the 7th chapter, the 11th verse. So let's stand for the reading of this familiar passage from 2 Chronicles. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon had 
planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as the house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you and seeking my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne as I made covenant with your father David, saying, You shall never lack a successor to rule over Israel. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. When President Trump, then candidate Trump, came up with the slogan, Make America Great Again, there was immediate criticism. Remember? The criticism was regarding whether or not America was still great or to what degree America had slipped from greatness. Remember? Now, last Sunday night at the God and Country concert, we celebrated the blessing of our nation and, we might say, under God first. You know, what I love about God and Country concert is that it has this wonderful balance of uplifting our faith first and then our patriotism second. And, and it's this wonderful blend that moves our hearts spiritually and patriotically. And, and, and it is such a genius concert that, Jimmy, you have a large part in Cheryl in putting together for us. Now, few would debate whether or not America had the greatest wealth, the greatest military capabilities, the greatest technological capabilities, the greatest Christian nation, well, are we the greatest Christian nation? You know, I'm not going to determine where America falls on the greatness scale. I've lived nearly six decades, and there has always been room for improvement in our country. I've noticed that. Have you? There have been big problems that we have faced even in my lifetime. I was born in the midst of racial segregation and it coming down and the Vietnam War ramping up. That's when I came into the world. And in schoolrooms, we watched on television as men walked on the moon and we learned how to protect ourselves from the Russians launching an atomic bomb by getting under our desks. 
The Cold War was colder than ever in the 70s and the 80s, and out-of-sight inflation and unemployment and sky-high interest rates had the economy frozen. I've witnessed walls coming down and walls going up. Terrorism has had many faces, from the Irish Republican Army to ISIS. We have watched from the sidelines as civil wars and unprecedented genocide unfolded, and we have even funded civil wars and trained soldiers to perform atrocities. We are a nation that is marked by civil reg uh, regression, ethical erosion, and spiritual rebellion, and a church becoming more and more irrelevant because it looks and acts like the divided world that we are called to transform. Our best hope of survival as a civilization, as a nation, is revival. Now, you'd expect a preacher to say that, wouldn't you? I hope you would, and I hope you'd believe what I just said is true. Don't we believe we need revival and that it begins with the people of God? I want you to understand something about revival. Revival is not for the sinner outside of the church. It is for the redeemed inside the church who are primed for revival. A sinner doesn't need revival. A sinner needs regeneration. The church needs revival. We need to focus on the things that we're called to do. Civilizations come and go, as is the testimony in Chronicles. But people of faith are called to last forever and to be faithful. You know, it is the member of the body of Christ who needs revival. You need revival. I need revival. The psalmist was right when he said to God in the 85th Psalm, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Your people may rejoice in you. Revive us, your people. You see, we act and we talk and we live as if we, the church, are dependent upon the world to get right. And we talk oftentimes about the world out there. And if the world would just come to the table of the church, then everything would be hunky-dory. But the bottom line is that the church, especially in this country, is called to lead morally, ethically, and spiritually to get right and to bless our country. We're not those who are called as people of faith to sit back and wait for blessings. We're called to be the blessing. The problem is that we have more of the world in the church than we have the church in the world. We've become dominated by a culture of division, even in the church. And therefore, those who know our message outside of the church look at us as irrelevant, as fake church. I didn't mean to say that. It just came out. It's nowhere here to be found, I promise. We, the people, are called by his name to revival. And that's what this passage is about. 
revival. The word humility is where this passage starts. First, God tells Solomon we must conquer our pride, and God calls us to humble ourselves. We read, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. And the word humble literally means to bend the knee. Humility is the one essential ingredient for revival, says the psalmist, the 34th Psalm. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Pride can lead us to prayerlessness. And the person who does not pray is saying, in essence, I can do just fine without any help. I can do just fine without God. I don't need to call on God or anyone else. I'm self-sufficient. It is pride that causes us to fight and to argue and to keep us from getting along. Pride paralyzes. Pride polarizes. Pride politicizes. And in the biblical story, it was pride that got Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. It was pride that got Satan kicked out of heaven. Pride is the attitude that says, we don't really need God. You know, I was reading a story about Muhammad Ali recently and you know, in my lifetime, Muhammad Ali was that smart aleck boxer who no one could beat. And toward the end of his life, I admired him so in his humility, really, in his faithfulness. And the way he faced Parkinson's hit real close to my home. It was said about Muhammad Ali that he got on an airplane one time and he was standing in the aisle talking and laughing and entertaining the passengers. And the plane was about ready to taxi down the runway. And so the flight attendant, stewardess at that time, came to him and said, Mr. Ali, you need to take your seat and fasten your seatbelt because the plane is about to take off. He looked at um, uh, the stewardess and he knew he was still on stage and entertaining the crowd. And he said, honey, Superman don't need no seatbelt. She looked at him and she said, yeah, and Superman don't need no airplane. Take your seat <laughs> and buckle up. <laughs> Pride says, I don't need God. Humility says, I don't need anything but God. God sends no one away empty except those who are full to the brim of themselves. If we want revival and to be great as a church and as a country, we must conquer our pride. And furthermore, if we want revival, we must pray. The next step is not only for us to humble ourselves, but it says that we are called to pray. One old preacher was quoted saying, Did you know the devil laughs when he, says, when he sees the strongest saint standing on his feet? But he trembles when he sees the weakest saint falling 
to his knees. We can pray without having revival, he said, but we cannot have revival without praying. As we pray, we are to seek God's face, says God to Solomon. Seeking God with all your heart is what we must aspire to. That's what is at the heart and soul of our worship. Prayer must be heartfelt. We must desire to come into God's presence with nothing but praise and adoration and thanksgiving, with humility, with prayers on our lips. We, by God's help, can make America great again. But the church has to focus on who we are and what we're called to do first. That should be our primary concern, who we are as people of faith in this country. William Bennett said that material gains will not be enough here. If we achieve full employment and greater economic growth, if we have a city of gold and alabaster, but our children have not learned how to walk in goodness, justice, and mercy, then the American experiment, no matter how gilded, will have failed. That's a powerful statement. But if our children have not learned how to walk in goodness, justice, and mercy, then the American experiment, no matter how gilded, will have failed. You know, I want to say this morning that I believe that we as a nation are increasingly turning to what, the, what is said in Chronicles to be wicked ways. And, and so often I think when we see wicked ways, we turn to a more, more of a moralistic understanding of what is wicked. When I think wicked ways has more to do with an ethical understanding of what is wicked, how, how we, we treat others with a divisive anti-civility. Stephen Carter in his book, Civility, talks about the cultural crisis in our nation. And though this book was written several years ago, I don't think it's, it, it has been any more needed than it is today. He defines this crisis as a loss of civility. He says civility is the way society respects one another. Stephen Carter put it in this marvelous phrase, civility is a way of loving the stranger. Jesus gave us this command, but it is a necessary part of being a civilized nation. He says that three institutions, Carter said, in our society teach us civility. What are those three institutions, would you think? The home, the church, the school. And he used this analogy of the three-legged stool. He said, if one of the legs is broken, then there is jeopardy in society. But if two of those legs are broken, there is collapse of civilization. Now that should get our attention, if that's true. The church is the steward of the tradition 
of loving the stranger, without which there is no civility. The church proclaims the importance of fidelity without which marriage and family will not survive. The church proclaims the divine worth of each child in society, which is the motivation for education, right? It has always been the motivation for education in our nation that we have a responsibility to see to the fulfillment of the potential of all of our children. Now I hear people sometimes say, well, my children have grown up. They're not around anymore, so I don't really have a, a responsibility anymore related to public education. And that's not a statement of Christian civility. That's a statement of tribalism. Education, educating all the children and others' children is the surest test of civilization. Educating all the children and others' children is the perfect example of what we as Christians, the Christian church, and even in the United Methodist liturgy, loving the stranger is all about. Because the church here holding on to the faith, passing on the values that we hold dearly to society, society will hold itself together as the church uplifts the important aspects of civilization. Without the values of loving the stranger or the fidelity of family or the sacred worth of understanding individuals and their sacred worth to, to God, democracy will not work. I think Stephen Carter's right. I think we have to carefully look at the importance of the value of what makes for home, what makes for church, what makes for school. You know, I want to ask us this morning to get involved in the mission of this church, in this community. We are committed here at Lover's Lane to raising a Christian family. We have seen a church dynamically change over the years. To become a church that has embraced what it means to love the stranger. And strangers have come into our midst, not just from this nation, but from many nations of the world. But it was because the, uh, this church embraces a higher standard of, of, of nationalism, and that standard is the important standard of God of loving the stranger in our midst and especially the children. I hope you know how much work this church has put into what it means to embrace the children, all the children of the world, and bring them into the loving care of what is the church. We have a staff member whose sole responsibility is the integration of our children and our youth into the larger children and youth program, the family ministry of this church, because we know him, how important that lesson is to our children and to the adults. 
We have to be a church that sees that we have sacred responsibility. The home is important. We have to uplift the importance of, of family, which I believe we do, and, and, and the education of children. We have our own school here, as well as embrace public schools all across this city. I think in our youth program, there are 40 different high schools represented. We need all of us. We need you to be contributing members of this church family, Lover's Lane. We need to understand our role as stewards to value humility and prayer and Christian civility, to see a responsibility to pass those values on to us, to get it right here, and hopefully be that beacon of light that other people, I can assure you other people are looking at us especially in our denomination, on how it's working here. So if humbly and prayerfully we can commit ourselves to Christian civility, this passage says God promises. Then will I hear from heaven, will forgive your sin and heal your land. God is far more ready to send revival to us than we are to receive revival. Therefore, we need to be passionate about the revival that God desires to send. And we as a church need to be passionate about what it means to humble ourselves, to be a people of prayer, to be a people committed to civility and teaching it in word and in deed, by example and practice. We are in need of a healing of our church and our nation, our land, as the chronicler said, that only the great physician can give. We have to bow down in humility and prayer and stand tall for civility and expect that from our politicians, from our leaders in our world. So now you know how to pray. This month, we're already into it, so 30 days or so. Pray for our leaders. Pray for them to humble themselves to be people of prayer, realizing that we need help from God. And I don't care if that prayer is a Christian prayer or a Muslim prayer or a Jewish prayer or whatever, we have to acknowledge we are a nation under God to be a people of prayer. Let us pray for our leaders for ourselves to be Christian and civil in all that we do. Amen.